Well, thank you so much for the invitation and for the welcome. It's lovely to be back uh, at St. Philip's again. When we receive, do you still receive letters, by the way? Do you ever get a letter or do you get emails? In letters, you always have to look at the end to find out who it's from, don't you? But emails, you can work out at the beginning who it's from, which is quite a help because you know whether you want to read it or not. (laughs) Well, uh, Paul's letters uh, and letters in Bible times always begin with the person who sent it. So Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the members of God's family who are with me. Uh, Paul is starting uh, talking about himself as an apostle, that is, someone who's sent, and he says, I'm sent neither by human commission nor by human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, because he's saying, "What, what the message I have comes from God. My words are God's words. And as you've heard already, that's a really important issue for the churches in Galatia. They they have to know who are the authorized teachers of God's words. And Paul is the one who is sent by Jesus Christ and by God the Father to the churches of the New Testament. And because uh, Paul is the one sent by God to the churches of the New Testament, and because his letter is included in our Bible, then he is also our apostle as well. Here are God's words to us. Paul's words are God's words because Paul is an apostle sent through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he also brings a greeting from the members of God's family who are with me, and writes to the churches of Galatia. Galatia was uh, in Asia Minor, so roughly in the middle of what we uh, now call Turkey. And there were a number of churches. And Paul is writing not just to one church, but to all the churches in all the towns and villages in that area. And uh, you might notice that Paul is writing not to the lead, he's not writing this letter to the leaders of the church, but to all the members of the church. And that will become important, as I'll show you in just a moment. But before Paul begins his message, he has a prayer. And I'd like you to find that prayer if you could open your Bibles at page 945. The prayer is found in verses 3 to 5. And I think it's a wonderful prayer... And I don't know if you ever practice memory verses. Do you remember memory verses from your childhood? Well, these are about to become some memory verses for us uh, today, and I hope for this Galatian series, because uh, if, you, if you have these memory verses in your mind, you'll be understanding all the time what the central message of Galatians is. Let's pick it up then at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, Paul explains in verse 4 how this grace and peace comes to us. 
It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself, that is, of course, he came down from heaven as the incarnate Son of God. He gave himself to the his disciples. He gave himself to the crowds. He gave himself in his healing and teaching and miracles and so on. But most of all, he gave himself to death on a cross. And we've just remembered that in uh, thinking about Good Friday. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself. Uh, why did he do it? He gave himself for our sins, that is, he died in our place. He died the death that we deserved. He he died to take the punishment that we deserved. He gave himself for our sins. And what was the result of this? It was, these are remarkable words in verse 4, to set us free from the present evil age. Have you ever thought about that? That the power of Jesus' death was sufficient to set you free from the present evil age. What does that mean? Well, it means that in Paul's days, in our day, there were pressures around in the the current society, the contemporary society, which were bad for Christians and bad for people. And one of the things that Christ did was to die for us, give himself for our sins, to set us free from the present evil age. Well, let me give you some examples of some present pressures of our present evil age. The first example is advertisements. Have you noticed every advertisement says, you won't be happy until you have this wig or new teeth or new spectacles or clothes or shoes, or holiday, or motor car. So every advertisement tells you, if you don't have this, you're missing out, and no one likes to miss out. And every advertisement, I like to think, is a lie. Because, in fact, you don't need these things to be happy, and if you depend on them to make you happy, they won't make you happy. My favourite example is the is the uh, advertisement for motor cars. You know, you, I see them endlessly on television, and you you're shown the car. You're not told anything about it, by the way, no information about it, but it gives you an image of freedom and success. And then they show the car driving along a country road with nothing, beautiful scenery, and nobody else around. And this car will give you freedom. I think really is that so? If you buy this car and you start driving it, of course, you'll be in a traffic jam in no time, won't you? It won't give you freedom at all. And the the, the pressure of our evil age is to be a consumer, isn't it? To consume more and more, buy more and more. I've got a friend who's a hoarder, a real hoarder. And her house is just jam, and the garage just jam-packed full of things she's bought because she's been told to be a consumer. And being a consumer keeps our society going. Or another lie in our world, a very powerful one, is there is no creator, and so you have to create yourself. You have to create your own worldview, your own reality, your own moral values, your own identity, your own sexuality. What a dreadful pressure to put on people to say, there's no creator, 
you have to create yourself. You're responsible for your own destiny, and you can make yourself anything you want to be. Isn't that remarkable? Because it's a lie, isn't it? If I thought to myself, well, the Olympic Games are coming up, so I'm going to be one of those people who can jump off a big diving board and go like that 14 times in the air and then up again and then land without a splash. Let me tell you, the chances of that happening are very remote. I cannot make myself whatever I want to be. And actually, it's, it put, it's setting people up for great disappointment, isn't it? You can be whatever you want to be. These, these are some of the lies that are around us. Another lie is, and I've seen it in some advertisements, you are the most important person in the world. Well, you are important, but not more important than somebody else. And what could be more destructive to friendships or families or marriages or communities or societies or businesses for every person to think, I am the most important person in the world. So everyone is here to serve me. Isn't that a dreadful lie? What a destructive lie that is. And how wonderful that as we read in Galatians chapter 1, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age. Wow, is that a wonderful freedom. What a wonderful, I hope you know that freedom. I hope you know what it is to be set free by Jesus Christ and the power of his death from the false ideas of our present evil age. And this is, we read in verse 3, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, I think these are such important words that it's really good for us to memorize them, so I'd like us to say them together. What we'll do is change the third word from you to us because we'll make it a prayer for ourselves. So we're praying uh, for us individually, but also for us as a church. We're praying for each other. So let's pray these words together now, verses 3 to 5. Grace to us and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That was a great practice. Let's do it again. Praying together for ourselves and for this church, all the members of this church, grace to us and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. I must then, Paul continues, I'm astonished that you, that is you churches, are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, that is, a different message about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the shocking thing about this, I think, is that we discover from these verses that churches can sin. We know that individuals can sin. I know that I sin every day. You know that you sin, I'm sure. But here's the grim reality 
that churches as a body can sin together. It's a shared common way of life. It's who we are as the church. It's what we do. It's what we accept, what we don't accept. Let me give you an example, a simple example. Um, You might belong to a prayerless church. I assume you don't because we've just had advertisements for for prayer meetings and you're here to pray. But imagine what a prayerless church is like. No one bothers to pray because it isn't worth praying. So, children grow up thinking that prayerlessness is the normal Christian life. And at church meetings, council meetings, people don't bother praying. In home groups, people might do a formal prayer, but there's no energy to it. There's no kind of commitment to it. Husbands and wives don't pray together. Parents don't pray with their children. You can meet with a fellow member of the church and talk about a problem, but no one says at the end, well, perhaps we should pray about this. And what, what, what happens in a church like that is that people accept prayerlessness as the normal Christian life. They do without it. They forget about it. They forget to do it. Now, what happens is then there's no one around to say, look, shouldn't we be praying some more? And the leaders aren't saying, prayerlessness is a sin. Now, I'm not saying you are a prayerless church. I'm just giving an example of what a prayerless church would be like. And that's a church in which everybody has accepted prayerlessness as the norm. What a contrast that would be with a prayerful church in which you can't get through a conversation without someone telling you that they've been praying about something and God has wonderfully answered their prayer. And when you, organize, when you advertise a prayer meeting, you have to put guards on the door because so many people flock along that there's not enough room. See? And uh, prayer, prayerfulness is a normal part of church life. And friends have a conversation, you have a chat over the back fence, over the telephone, and you say, well, let's pray about that, about that thing. I say to, uh, to minister, young ministers going out, if you want people to come to a meeting, offer food. If you don't want them to come, offer prayer. See? How wonderful it is to be in a prayerful church because then everybody's encouraged to pray. In a prayerless church, even the, ch- the, the prayer warriors get discouraged, you see. And uh, a church can repent. A church can repent of its prayerlessness. And if a church does, God will forgive them, of course, and then restore them to, to being a prayerful church again. Now, the problem in Galatia wasn't prayerlessness. It was turning to a different kind of message about Jesus Christ. You're deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ, turning to a different gospel, a different message. Verse 7, there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ, that is, change it. Or verse verse 8, proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. And what Paul is saying in verses 8 and 9 is that God will curse those who corrupt the true message about Jesus Christ. And that, dear friends, is why we prayed and prayed again, verses 3 to 5, because that is the true message of Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory for ever and ever. Now what was, the, what was the problem happening at Corinth? I need to explain that the churches of Corinth, would, uh, Galatia rather, would have been made up of people who came from a Jewish background and a Gentile or a non-Jewish background. And there was a massive gulf between coming from a Jewish background and a non-Jewish background. So just for the, just for the fun of it, your, your people who've come from a Jewish background... You've been to going to synagogue all your lives and you've just heard the message of the gospel, you've become Christians. And you people over here, you look like Gentiles to me, uh, you, you haven't come from a Jewish background, you've come from a Gentile background. You, you Jewish people, you know there's only one God. You've been going to the synagogue every Sabbath all your lives. You've heard the law of Moses read and preached and you know that God wants you to live holy and godly lives. You have to love your neighbor. You're not allowed to murder people, not allowed to steal. You know that you have to circumcise your, all your, your males when they're little boys. And most of all, you have to keep away from Gentiles because they're unclean, because they offer food to false gods and they have uh, very low moral standards. Uh, you won't go to their house because... There's likely to be a dead baby, an aborted baby buried in the back garden. You wouldn't, wouldn't want to go into a cemetery, you see. So you, you, you live on your own. You keep uh, away from the Gentiles. You Gentiles, you, you've got one God. You've got lots of gods. Uh, you've all got different gods, and some of you have lots of gods because you rather enjoy it. Okay. And so you go to your, your pagan temples uh, every day to offer sacrifices. But your, your religions, your religions aren't about moral behavior like uh, not telling lies and loving your neighbor and stuff like that. They're just about what you do at the temple. So you can live how you like as long as you keep offering the sacrifices to your various gods. And uh, you have low moral standards. Now imagine you've got people from a Jewish background and a Gentile background who come together in a church of Jesus Christ. What's going to happen? You're going to think, I wouldn't like to associate with those people. Look, they don't know how to behave. And particularly, they don't follow the law of Moses, which is so basic. And they don't circumcise their little boys. So we want to keep... we. We want to keep a bit apart from them. And you people are thinking, well, we're now Christians. These fuddy-duddies over here, we don't want to be like them. See. But we, we, we think that perhaps we should pick up some of their ritual practices like circumcision because that will make us God-pleased with us. So rather than thinking, how should we live every day, seven days a week to please God, you're thinking... Perhaps this is something we should do just to make, make ourselves belong. And the Jews are thinking, well, yes, actually, what you Gentiles need to do is to become Jews so you can be real Christians. What you Gentiles have to do is to become Jews, and then you can be real Christians. 
And this has caused such a division in the church, such confusion in the church, that Jews are thinking themselves as superior Christians, better than that mob. And these people are starting to think, well, perhaps we have to become Jews in order to become real Christians. And Paul is saying that is not true. What makes you a real Christian is Jesus' death and resurrection for you, not things you do, not ways you behave, or not rituals you engage in, like circumcision or offering sacrifices or something like that. So what's happening is that some people are coming in and making Jews think they're superior, and making Gentiles think they're inferior because they haven't done enough Jewish things. And that's fatal for both, isn't it? Because then you're trusting in your Jewishness and you're feeling condemned because you're not Jewish enough. And it was so awful in the Church of Galatia that they stopped eating together. Imagine that if we had went for a cup of tea and we had a line down the... After the service, we had a line down the middle with a sign saying, Jewish Christians this way, Gentile questions that way, and different cups and sauces and stuff like that. Well, that's an easy trap to fall into, I'm afraid. And it happens in churches when churches decide that they won't they won't allow people in who won't be like them. So I had a friend who was, uh, had a, was at a church with elderly people in Melbourne, in a suburb of Melbourne, and she wanted to introduce a crying room. Uh, and the church council, first of all, said, yes, that would be all right. Then they said, no, it wouldn't be all right, because if there was a crying room, there might be crying children in church and that would be noisy and so they couldn't hear things well that's that's saying unless you're like us you can't be a member of this church it's making people trust in having silent children which is a miracle beyond comprehension or another friend of mine was in a church where a South Sea Islander came to church one Sunday dressed in his South Sea Island clothes. I don't know what they were. But somebody said to the vicar on the way out, well, he's really not our sort of person, is he? In other words, we, you know, we're white. We don't want anybody who isn't white here. We don't want other people here. To which my friend said, I don't think you're our sort of person either with that attitude. But we do it so easily, don't we? We begin to trust in things that we do, the way we behave, uh, to think that we really belong. It's like people who think, well, I've been going to this church for 30 years, so I really belong, but she's just new. She doesn't really belong. But actually, we're all members of the church, aren't we? Because Jesus died for us. That's the basis of our membership of the church. We don't own the church because we've been going to the church for 30 years and whatever else we've done. We have to focus all the time on what Christ has done, not what we have done or what other people ought to do. 
we have to trust in Christ's death alone, his grace alone, and live by faith alone. Not, not make ourselves or make others do things, jump through hoops that we invent in order to be a proper Christian, a real Christian. It's amazing the number of people, Christian people, who sit in churches and think, well, I'm a second-class Christian because they compare themselves with somebody else who's a wonderful Christian. They think, well, I'm not really a Christian, not like that person. Or else they think, well, at least I'm better than that one, you know. But that's all, that's focusing on what we do, not on what Christ has done. I was visiting a friend uh, who was dying a a year ago. He was a Presbyterian layman. He'd done lots of work for the church. And I asked him, are you confident about your future as you face death? He gave me a wonderful reply. He said, I trust the promises of God. He did not say, I've been a Presbyterian all my life. Or I've been a member of the church all my life. Or I've been an elder since I was 20. Or I've been on all these committees. He knew that he could only look look to the future because of what Christ has done for him. Which is why our memory verses are so important. Grace to us and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age and these silly ideas according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory for ever and ever. And please notice that we'll stick with the true gospel and not turn to a different gospel if we keep reminding ourselves of what the true gospel is. Some people do it with John 3.16, don't they? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a great verse, isn't it? But here's another one that I'm encouraging you to remember Uh, and to make a verse that you repeat every day or every time you're going to pray, you say these words again, just to put them into your mind because you'll reject the lies by focusing on the truth. And here is the truth. Let's say it together. Grace to us and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. May God write his words in our minds, hearts and lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen.